Good morning, church. Today our reading is taken from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, good morning, One Hope. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Andrew, and um, it's really good to be able to share with you this morning. Thanks, Joel, for, for leading us this morning. Um, and Carol for uh, for the worship and leaders in singing. And um, wasn't it great to be able to pray with some of the health workers in our church and to get a little bit more insight into the challenges and the ways that we can stand with our health workers. Um, I encourage you to continue to pray for them. This is not an easy time to be in health work um, in any of those situations, but God is with them. We know that and we can pray to that end as well. Um, how are you going with a psalm a day for 50 days? How's that going for you? How's this first week been? We've done it for a week now. and um, Has it been new for you? Is this something that you've never done before? Um, have some of the psalms jumped out in a new way at you? Have they come across as different? Um, has there been some fresh stuff that you've discovered? Um, and if you're like me, have you been encouraged by some of the psalms? And one of the things that um, I was thinking about this week and that I was mentioning to a few people, have you found um, creative ways to engage the psalm? You know, um, perhaps by singing it or by drawing, uh, if you're visual, I'd said this in a clip earlier this week, if you're visual, by drawing an impression that you get from the psalm. Or perhaps writing your own psalm, seeing how the psalmist writes and thinking about God and, and writing your own psalm. There are different ways that we can engage with the Psalms and different ways that we can allow them um, to come into our hearts and into our minds. And if you have discovered some interesting ways or if you've, if you've seen some great things in the Psalms and some new things, discovered new things, we'd love you to share it with us. You see, this is not just about a reading plan, although you have a reading plan. And it's not even just about a preaching series. But it's a way for us as a community to grow, uh, to grow in God through each other, uh, through the word, 
And the way that God speaks is through the word and through each other. So I encourage you to share some of those things. And I just wanted to say that off the bat. I've been loving the Psalms and I'd love to hear if you have been as well. You know, today is the second in our short series on Psalms. We're going to be in the Psalms for about seven or eight weeks. And um, today's our second one, Psalm 2. And Joel introduced us last week to the first Psalm. And these first two Psalms kind of form a basis for the, for the rest of the Psalms to follow. And I think Joel talked to us about that. They're a kind of an introduction, if you like, or they lay the foundation for many of the things that, that follow in the Psalms. There is, these first two Psalms, there is no clear author, although Acts 4 verse 25 would credit David with Psalm 2 at least anyway. And some say that it's actually David and Nathan, or David or Nathan, that have written this Psalm as they ponder the nation's reaction to David being anointed as king. As they, as they wonder why all these other kings keep on forming to get alliances and forming together to battle against David, God's anointed king. And some commentators would say there, this psalm too, there would be two ways to, to see the psalm, two ways to apply this psalm. Actually, just as it is, time-bound and practical, applicable to David, why do the nation, why do all these other kings plot against me? You know, I am the Lord's anointed. And, um, you know, God had said, I've set my king in Zion. Zion was the place that, that David conquered and established the royal palace there. And it was a, a royal place. And so it could have been applied in, in just a local sense, in just a current time-bound sense. But it can also be seen in a much wider and eternal sense with, with spiritual realities that reach much deeper and much further the, than just the reign of King David. And many truths. And this is the way that we want to see it. And this is the way that we understand it. And I believe that's the way that God reveals himself through this psalm to us. And John mentioned that these two psalms are kind of linked, aren't they? Some say that they were initially just one psalm. You read some commentators that say there was no psalm 1 and 2. They're just one psalm. But in the New Testament, Paul already refers to Psalm 2. So right back then, it was clear that it was considered the second in the Psalms. However, all commentators would agree that they do belong together. They're bookended. Psalm 1 starts with blessing or blessed, and Psalm 2 finishes with blessed and blessing. They're bookended with blessing. And so the psalmist would say to us and to the listener and reader, it would do us well to grasp these two truths that come out of these two psalms in our lives. And there's two key things um, that the psalmist wants us to see just in these two psalms. That, that there is a law, a rule, a way. Joel talked yesterday, uh, last week about you know when, when it says in Psalm 1, uh, the law that we could consider that the, a way, the way. The psalmist wants us to see that there's a law, a way if you like, in which we can delight that we can meditate and, and we can live in that way so that it leads to blessing. And the other thing is he wants us to see that there's a ruler, a king, a very good, just, loving and fair king, a king appointed by God himself. And understand how we can best relate to that king, live under that king. And he's going to appeal to those things in the rest of the Psalms as we go along. 
Personally, for me, I, I read <clears throat> these two psalms, and sometimes if you read these two psalms, you think that the writer or the writers have it all figured out. You know, they've, they've got their stuff together. They're saying, well, this is how it works. There's, there's, there's a way, stick to it, and, and you'll be blessed. And, and there's a, someone who gave us the way, you know, stick to him and you'll be blessed. And enjoy the blessings, you know. And it seems like they, they have this wonderful, great, close and intimate relationship. No doubts. You know, they're close to God. They know the right way and, and everything's okay. And it can be, I don't know if it's what it's like for you, but it can be then hard to identify. But if we read further into the Psalms, if we allow these two Psalms just to open the door to the Psalms for us, we'll see that there was real pain. There was real sorrow. There was real struggle. There was real ways that, that the psalmists and the writers struggled with God. And that's strangely comforting to me, and I'm, I'm guessing it would be to you as well. Because we know that these psalms are real and that they can speak to us as human beings. And we'll see echoes of these two things in Psalm 1 and 2 again and again as we go through the psalms. If Psalm 1 tells us that there is, tells us that there is blessing in the way of the Lord, then Psalm 2 is telling us that there is blessing in the Lord of the way. Let me just say that again. If Psalm 1 tells us that there is blessing in the way of the Lord, then Psalm 2 tells us, helps us to see that there's blessing in the Lord of the way. We've not only been provided with a rule or a way, but also a ruler, a king. <clears throat> and that matters. We'll see that that matters. The key message in this second psalm the key thing that the psalmist gives us in his second psalm is right at the end, right at the end of the last verse, where he says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's his key message for the psalm. Sounds simple, doesn't it? That's comforting and, and it, it is good, right? And we'd head straight there for refuge, wouldn't we? But it's at the end of the psalm as well, isn't it? And, and clearly the psalmist knows that it's not always that simple. It's not just enough to say, Blessed is he who takes refuge in the king. He needs us to understand a few things. He needs us to understand a little bit more about this king and about ourselves in order that we can fully and freely walk in to that, that refuge, that blessing in refuge. And there's a few things that I think the psalmist wants to show us and there's three things that I wanted to talk about this morning. And they are, number one, we don't like rulers. We don't like kings. Number two, but this ruler is different. And number three is be wise, kiss the king and take refuge in him. And they're the three things that I want to talk about this morning. You know, the first thing was we, we don't like rulers. We, we don't like kings. The psalmist, if we, when you read the psalm, he almost starts in frustration and confusion, doesn't he? He says, why? You know, it's in vain. Why would they do this? I don't get it. He's almost vexed, isn't he? In his, his language here, he says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Like, it's a waste of time. Why do other kings get together and, and why would they see how they could oppose God's anointed? <clears throat> and verse 3, you know, it reads like this. It says, let us, this is what these kings are doing. Let us 
burst their bonds apart and let's cast away their cords from us. And in other versions, it says that this is what the kings are doing. And this is crazy. They're, they're trying to break away or they're trying to cut loose of control. Or the, the language is of unshackling themselves, like they feel like they're shackled to something. And after reading Psalm 1 and sneaking a look at the end of Psalm 2, you might respond like the psalmist would. Say, wait a minute, but they, you know, why would you do that? Yeah, it's true for us too, isn't it? Our human tendency, it's true for me to resist submission, to resist uh, control um, and being told what to do. Um, I, I guess it starts when we're really little. You know, uh, when, when a toddler looks up at mum, you know, they're, they're holding their finger near the cookie jar or they're holding their finger near, near a hand near a forbidden place or about to do something and they, they look up at mum. You know, there's this, there's this resistance or this, there's this push against authority when we're really little already, ready to defy what we know the authority says. You know, teenagers, you know, you can't tell me what to do. And, you know, most 15-year-olds know, know enough in their estimation already and, and they don't want to be told what to do. And our society reflects this kind of rebellion all over the place. You know, we have protests and, and all sorts of stuff going on in our very recent history. And what's that all about if it's not about sort of saying to an authority, no, we won't submit. You can't tell us what to do. We, we're not going to live with your standard. In fact, we're going to rise up and we're going to gather and we're going to plot against it somehow because we need to bring that authority down. Why is it? that we often try to break loose from instruction or submission or rule. We, we want to present opposing views. We, we hate control. Why don't we like rulers and kings? Well, essentially, because from birth on, we want to be king, don't we? You know, can you, you can hear the, the playground play, can't you? And I don't know if it was like, what it was like for you, but when we were playing in the playground on the, the climbing things, you know, when you got to the top, you said, I'm the king of the castle, and who are you? You're all dirty rascals. We want to be the king. And in essence, that doesn't change from when we're little to when we're teenagers to when we're adults. We, we plot against authority. We push against a king. We don't like kings because we want to be the king. So why do we set ourselves against our rulers? What are the bonds or the cords that you and I fear? Why is it that we, we find it so hard? Is there, is there fear involved there? What are the, the kings that we would rather serve? Or the, what are the things that we feel like that the rulers and the authorities are taking away? You know, maybe the king... Will take what I love. You know, these guys, these these other kings had their had their terrains and probably had their their kingdoms and and they were fearful of King David or the king and they were fearful maybe he will take away what I love, and maybe that's true for us. Maybe the king will take away what I need: money, security, a relationship. I'll feel shackled. I'll, I'll feel out of control. The king will spoil my fun, uh, spoil my plans. Because I know what's good for me, and this ruler doesn't. I know what I want best and what would be best for my life, but this king doesn't. 
The psalmist is going to say to us and help us understand, then you don't really know this king that I'm talking about. You see, when I say I want to be the king and I want control, my sinful nature rises up against the ruler and the rules. But that's where the psalmist gets vexed and, 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 and confused because it's like shooting myself in the foot. He, he doesn't understand it. And it would be like it's in vain. It's, some translations say that it's a waste of time. It's futile work or useless plans. And why would you? <clears throat> there is no blessing in rebellion against this king. I hear myself saying, and probably some of you after I've went through some of that stuff about protests and, and kings and leaders and not following rules, <clears throat> you might say to me, and I might even say, but you don't know what some rulers have been like. You don't know what some leaders and kings have been like in history and even today or in my life. You don't know the decisions that they've made, the, the bad choices, the corruption that I've seen. They're wrong and, and I need to stand against them. Um, and, and so protests and civil disobedience becomes you know, something I need to do because they're wrong. Well, it is actually true that human rulers and leaders and kings fail in varying ways. Some in big ways, some in small ways, some in national ways or worldly ways. And perhaps some of the rulers in your life and the kings in your life have failed you. And it's also true that in history, there needed to be resistance at times. And I'm sure that that will come again. But be careful, because what the psalmist wants us to understand is that at times, our experience of bad kings, bad rulers, or things that haven't gone right, experience of situations like that in our lives, joined together with our sinful nature, translates into that same resistance to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the King that wants to rule over us. And I'm sure that the psalmist knows this. I'm sure that the psalmist understands this because that's why he leads us to the next point. I'm sure that he understands that in life there have been kings and, and these kings are wicked, obviously. And in Psalm 1 he talked about the wicked, didn't he? I'm sure he knows that. But that's why he goes to pains to say, but this king, this ruler is different. This king is very different. Have a look at verse 6. Verse 6 is, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is no ordinary king. The king the psalmist is talking about, the king that he wants to reveal to you and I, the Lord of the way, is no ordinary king. You know, this is God. I have set my king. I have set, I have established, I've installed my king in Zion. Zion, as I said before, was that, that hill that, that David had conquered and he established that royal palace there. And it was considered the seat of power, the seat of authority, where all authority came from. <clears throat> the nearness of power. And it became an understanding in, in that time and a saying that, that that was where ultimate power and authority came from. And it almost took on a supernatural. And so when the psalmist uses that language, I have set my king on Zion, that said, hey, this king, this is ultimate authority speaking. That's where authority resided. So for the listener, this now adds indisputable authority to the words to come. 
You might have railed against rulers and kings. You might have had bad kings and, and maybe you've even had cause to. But it's an exercise in futility to resist my king. To plot against my king. No blessing can come from that. Who is this king? You know, and, and, and you can imagine listeners thinking, well, who is this king? And here we see the next few verses, verses 7 and 8. And we see that this is now Jesus speaking. The language switches to Jesus. <clears throat> and he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Son of God himself. That's authority. It's undisputed. No earthly system installed you. This was not an earthly someone had found this guy and said, he's a good guy, he's strong, he, he seems to have the people behind him. This is, this is God. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Begotten, my real son. And it goes on, so ask of me. Now that was language when a king or someone in high authority or a Caesar wanted to, when someone really pleased him, and we read in some of the Old Testament stories when, when he was really pleased by one of his, his right-hand men or a lovely woman, he would say, ask of me whatever you want. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. That was language. Ask of me because I have authority and I can give you whatever you want. And so this language is really important where Jesus says, the Lord said to me, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Inheritance. And that's a kingly prerogative. And so the listeners hearing like this is a different king. This is not some ordinary king. <clears throat> and I will make the nations your inheritance. All the earth your possessions. That was unheard of. Everything would be under his rule. No other earthly king had that. No other earthly king was offered the nations as their inheritance or everything on earth as their possession. So what does this mean? What does this mean for you and I? This is great history, isn't it? But what does it mean? <clears throat> What's included in that inheritance? What's included in those possessions that the Lord had given to this king? To be fair to the Old Testament listeners, they may not have even fathomed how different this ruler was. They're still trying to get it out of the local context, but they're realising something's going on here. But we can. We can. This king is Jesus. And included in that inheritance and in those possessions is us. We are his inheritance. We are his possession. And if we understand the New Testament as we move forward, we understand that he sees us as his greatest inheritance and his greatest and most precious possessions in the case of our king. And in the case of our king, Jesus, these words now don't conjure up control or shackles or slavery, do they? In fact, quite the opposite. For us to be his inheritance, for us to, to be his possession, isn't this kind of sense of slavery and control? Because for us to be his possession, he had to give up his status, his freedom, his life, in order to inherit us, in order to 
take inheritance of us, take up the offer of the Lord. To free us from the shackles of slavery that we couldn't even see were holding us back from refuge and blessing. You see, that's why this is at the end of the blessed are those who take refuge in him. It needs to be at the end because we need to see this. We weren't even in, in a place to walk into that refuge until we understood what Jesus did in order that we could be his possession. He had to love us more than life itself. Oh, this king is very different. Earthly kings seek to get as high as they can. This king came down and then he went even lower for us. Earthly kings want their subjects to die for them, for their cause. This king died for us, for our cause. Earthly kings reign for a time, don't they? And then they go. This king will reign forever. A person of real majesty that loves you that much? Who wouldn't submit to that kind of ruler? But there's more. Not only, and this is exciting, there's more than this. Not only are we inherit his inheritance, but Romans says, because of our king's work on the cross, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we now share in that inheritance. We now share in those possessions. You know, Romans says... Um, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we, all, we, must, that we may also be glorified with him. Did you see that? If we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is Christ going to inherit? What is Christ's inheritance? What does it say here? The nations. The ends of the earth will be his possessions. Romans says we're co-heirs. So not only, not only have we got a good king that has made us his inheritance and possession... He now has invited us to share in that. Oh, this king is very different. Earthly kings want to build a kingdom and reign over us. This king is building a kingdom so we can reign with him. We rule with him. Astounding. Isn't that amazing? This is a very different ruler. This king's rule is motivated by love. One who rules for us to free us. And share his kingdom with us. <clears throat> and so I say again, how useless and self-damaging would our rebellion be? How useless would it be? How in vain would it be for us to plot against this king? And that's why the psalmist says, and this is my third point, so be wise, kiss the son and take refuge in him. Therefore, he says, doesn't he? Now, therefore, so be wise, serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. The psalmist begins to close with a warning to those that he spoke to at the start, doesn't it? He, he begins with a bit of a warning. And it's kind of like it will do you well. It would be smart to serve this king with reverence. Give him the recognition he deserves. 
You know, serve him with reference. Recognize his authority and who he is. You know, that was tough language for the kings of those days, wasn't it? Because to recognize the authority of another king was to diminish them. But the psalmist says, no, it would do us well to serve this king with reverence and recognition. Warning, please don't treat it lightly. And rejoice, uh, enjoy being the benefits of being his subject with trembling, realizing who he is. And there's some clear admonitions there if you, <coughs> if you don't do that. There's some clear language there. Be warned if you don't do that. Kiss the sun was also really clear language, wasn't it? <clears throat> For submission or allegiance or, or worship or significance. It was a way of recognizing someone superior to you. And you may have seen it in movies or you might see it somewhere where someone comes in the presence of a great king and they come on their knees and they, they kiss the feet or they, they kiss to show submission and allegiance. And in the days of old kings, you had to do that. You came into their presence and you, you kissed them. And, and if you didn't, well, there was trouble. If you didn't do that, then, then you might be you might beheaded or, or, um, or at least seriously cast out. And this kind of, the, the remnants of this still lives in some cultures. In fact, you will, you'll notice, um, those of us that have been in Uganda, you'll notice that you'll go to, to some places and, and you'll walk into um, a home or something. And if they see you as a pastor or they see you as someone important, they, they'll come on their knees before you and, and they'll, they'll just they'll bow before you. And, and it feels really awkward, to, just to be honest. But there's a history of that. There's this recognition of submission. And, and the psalmist says, you know, kiss the sun. Recognize this king. This is at the very least, you know, this is a, at the very least, this is an admonishment to me. And I would suggest to us all, despite the amazing truth of our wonderful king and all he's done, we need to acknowledge that the desire to be our own king the desire to, to break from his rule and to, to push against his control. And that attraction for us to false freedom, that's continually something that I need to recognize and deal with. And we all need to do that. You know, it would be easy just to read this and say, oh, got it. You know, from now on, I'm going to do this. But I need to recognize it in my life. There's always this tendency to want to, to plot against this king, to, to push against this king. But the psalmist warns me, you know, treat this king with reverence and fear. Serve him with reverence and, and, and rejoice him in him with trembling. And when I hear that and, and I hold that against my tendency to want to push against the king, this helps me to have a right picture of the king, a right reverence of the king. Because then you and I can, can serve and rejoice genuinely and freely at his pleasure and might I add with his pleasure but the psalmist finishes doesn't he with those words and I've been saying that blessed are those who take refuge in him that's more attractive than those words of anger and wrath and, and look out because he's going to break them with a rod of iron etc isn't it much nicer to hear blessed are those who take refuge in him that's way more attractive it sounds nicer than the warning and <laughs> It's kind of, the psalmist is preaching a sermon, if you like, that's on the one hand hard-hitting, but then it's kind of soft, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon talks about 
two ways of preaching and, and perhaps this is where it began or the psalmist knew that. You know, two ways of presenting, Charles Spurgeon talks about two ways of gospel presentation or two ways to attempt to convert someone. Fire and brimstone, an angry God. You must do this or else God is going to crush you and, and you cannot fight against this great God. And he says there are times that that's really valid. But then there's the love approach. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. That kind of approach, isn't there? And he says that that's always valid sometime. But then he comments on this, on this psalm. And he's speaking about this psalm. And he says the following, and I think we'll have it on the screen for you. This text, however, seems to be a happy combination of the two. And I suggest that the most successful ministry will combine both means of bringing men to Christ. The text thunders with all the bolts of God, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But it doesn't end in thunder. There comes a sweet, soft, reviving shower after the storm. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The need for us to surrender, to give allegiance and worship are real. And failing in that has real consequences and we all see that in small and big ways in our lives. But this king is different than earthly kings. <clears throat> His intent in calling us to submission is for good, for our good, for us. And it leads to blessing. This is a just king. This is a good king. In The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, Susan says when she's been taken to meet Aslan, she's, she's a bit fearful. She says, and you'll see this on the screen, she says, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Psalm 2 reminds me that I have a good king and a good ruler. And he is the one, the only one, I can take refuge in. Others will, and they have, and they will fail. Other kings, other rulers, they failed us, and they will continue to do that. And they will give me a false picture of a king, of the king. And perhaps even cause me to rebel. Only the king God has established is a good refuge. Only this king invites me to be part of his kingdom. But invites me to be part of his kingdom more than just a subject. Only this king invites me to be not just a subject, but as a partaker in his kingdom. As a sharer in the inheritance. As a sharer in all the possessions. Only this king has sacrificed himself so that I can reign with him. Blessed am I. Blessed are you. Blessed are we who take refuge in him, the real king. So in Psalm 1, Joel shared with us last week a warning and an invitation that led us to blessing, refuge. In Psalm 2, we see the same thing, don't we? We see a warning, but then an amazing invitation to serve and rejoice 
in and with our good king. And that too leads to blessing. We're blessed. Blessed are we as we seek our shelter and refuge in him. And in pondering, I'm thinking, and greater still than David could ever have imagined if he was the writer of the Psalms or he was reading the Psalms, greater still, we can reflect on the cross and we can now say, when we follow the way of the Lord, we will reign with the Lord of the way. Truth. Comforting truth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word again today. We want to thank you for the Psalms and the great way you reveal yourself in the Psalms and the wonderful truths that we discover. Also the wonderful real truths that we can see the reality of our life, the recognition that, of, of, of what goes on in our lives. But you open the door to us, Lord, to see you, our great King. You open the door to us to, to walk in, to be with you, to understand your rule and reign and all that you've given us. To understand how we can share in that. Understand how we can share in that as we worship you, as we serve you, as we rejoice in you. And as we look to the cross, Jesus, we know that you weren't and you aren't just a king that wants to control us. You're a king that wants to give himself for us. And you did that. And we're forever grateful. We stand in awe of you, Lord, and we thank you for your work. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at them. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work in us to grow us through them. In Jesus' name, amen.